Everybody say it with me. Everybody say, in the beginning. All right, like you just had a Red Bull. Everybody say, in the beginning. There you go. We're in a part two of a series called In the Beginning. Real quick, by show of hands, how many of you were not here last week? Raise your hand. You were not here last week. Wow, it's amazing from week to week. So here's what I want you to do. If you can, go get a copy of the CD last week on your way out of service because I would love for you to kind of know what the, what, the, what the foundation of this series is because Genesis is a progressive layout, isn't it? It begins with this idea called creation that God unravels the universe. And we looked at basically like, what does that mean? Was, was that meant to be literal? Was that actually? six days? Was it something poetic? Was it something that was kind of symbolic? What was that? And, and, and even this, this is the big thing that we learned last week too, is that Genesis was not ever meant to be some scientific establishment. What it was actually meant to be was a theological establishment because it was, listen to this, it was a counter argument to the pagan religions of its day. And we looked at it, and as a matter of fact, somebody said, Pastor, look, when you start talking all those weird names and them little gods and big gods and the, the, the monster that got cut in half, you went too fast. I said, you don't even need to know that stuff. I just was trying to like get you reeled in a little bit. But like, so, so we learned that like, that, there, that, that Genesis was actually meant to be a counter argument, that it was to say, no, 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 God is not like that. You have to remember that, that Genesis was written in a time period where people thought that it was okay to kill their babies to get God to answer their prayers. How many know you need to put a stop to that somehow? So it's like, no, 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 stop doing that. This, that's not who God is. This is not what mankind, and so it's this big counter argument. So you'll see all these different comparisons to the ancient religions of their day. In essence, Moses was playing on some of the words and ideas that they used in their ancient religious documents, and he would use them to say, no, God's not like that at all. And so today we're gonna to move forward and, and I can't cover everything. This is gonna be like a five week series. And so when you look at the progression of Genesis, you know what happens after, after the creation? What do you have? You have Adam and Eve. I don't wanna get into that. I actually have a whole series on Adam and Eve I wanna bring back and redo at some point in the future. What happens after Adam and Eve? You got Cain and Abel, we talked about that just a minute ago. After that, you have the begats. You know what I'm talking about? Bunch of weird people with weird names that seem to live for hundreds of years. You know, the begot, so begot, so begot. You have all that. Then you have the flood. Noah is, is, is covered in chaos and surrounded by basically people who are absolutely just evil. And that's what the Bible says is that the men of, or the sons of God had evil intent in their heart always. That's all kinds of bad. And so God sends a flood and he spares one family out of it. And shortly after Noah gets off the boat, the Bible says that the earth begins to repopulate again and it kind of lets some time lapse. But when it lets time, when time lapses, it doesn't really say how much, but you end up with this new story called the Tower of Babel. How many of you are familiar with the story of the Tower of Babel? Just a little bit. You've at least heard of it. That's what we're going to take a look at today. So if you have your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 11. We'll look there in just a second and we'll pray before we begin. Let's pray now. Father, speak to us today. Oh, we believe that your words, they have life. They have meaning. They have something to teach us, to correct us, to guide us. God, that, that we can find out more of who you are and figure out what your purpose is for our lives through gleaning and reflecting from these words. So God, we don't take it lightly. These, these are not words out of, uh, out of Reader Digest. These are not words that were on the New York Times bestseller. These are words that were divinely inspired. And so God, we pray that you would speak these words into our lives today, Lord. In Jesus' name, we all said... Amen. Let's read together. Genesis chapter 11, verse number one. The Bible says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. 
And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, they had asphalt for mortar, and they said, well, let us build a city for ourselves, a tower whose tops is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But, everybody say but. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they purpose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from, all, from over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Hence where we get the name that this was called the Tower of Babel. Now here's what you need to know. I wanna give you like a little bit of like history and a little bit of insight into what's going on here because at first glance, you don't even really know what they did. Do you ever think of that when you think of the scripture? You're like, they just were trying to build a city, God. Like, what's wrong with building a city? What, why, were the, why were you so anti-city building at this point in time? There's a lot of things that are going on in the story that kind of aren't really, really clear, but here's what you need to know. That, that life really began to spring forth from an area of the world called Mesopotamia. This is where the Tigris, the Euphrates, is where Adam and Eve, the Garden of Eve. Life began to really spring forth and spread out of this area of the world. And in this area of the world is where we now have basically Iran and Iraq and these countries and a plain in the land of Shinar, and there they begin to build a city. This is, in essence, the beginning of the city of Babylon. Everybody say Babylon. Now, here's what you need to know, though. Now, what did I tell you? That Genesis is not just meant to be some type of scientific or historical document, but it's also meant to be a counter-argument for the pagan religions that were going on around them. Babylon was the central city of paganism. It was the central city of every future dominant kingdom for the next several thousand years in essence. And so the city of Babylon, this is where Nebuchadnezzar reigned. This is where the Assyrian Empire reigned. This thing was where really paganism began to spread out of. And so they're literally, the Hebrew writer here is kind of making fun of Babylon. See, the, the word Babylon came from two words that they pushed together, Bab and Elam, which means the gate of God. They were building a pagan temple, an idolatrous temple. And the Hebrew writer says, I'm gonna let you guys know that where you've gone in your life is so off base, is so far away from where God originally wanted you to go that you're not living at the gate of God, you're living at the gate of confusion. You gotta remember, it's a counter argument. He goes, this isn't Babylon, this is Babel. And I'm gonna tell you why you have that name. So again, you see all these different things. The Bible says that the earth had one language and one speech. That, that's kind of important. It says, come, let us bake bricks. Now this is fascinating. This is where you get into like the idea that like the author actually knows what he's talking about. See, when we look at history, you gotta remember that like there's different periods of time. And if you go back far enough, you have the Stone Age, right? In essence, they called these things different ages based on the different tools and methods they used to build. So you had the Stone Age, then you had the Bronze Age. This right here is kind of like right at the end of the Stone Age, at the beginning of the Bronze Age. And so the author actually, you can tell he was literally there because all of archaeology proves this is how they built buildings. Like they didn't have this. Now in Canaan, they would use stone, but in Mesopotamia, they didn't have it. So you know what they would do? Is they would really gather mud together, make it into the shape of a brick, and then they would just let it bake in the sun. And then later they figured out, actually, that's not very strong. They had buildings falling on people. They said, we need to get it stronger. So they would make these ovens and literally would bake 
bake and get them as hot as they can. And then the other thing they use, the Bible says they use asphalt was actually the word bitumen. It's, it's this unique little sloppy material they used just to kind of like put it on the outside just to make it a little bit stronger. This is actually, like if we go back to the Enuma Elish, which is the oldest religious document known to man, it says in their document that they took bricks and for a year they baked them just so that they could build these cities. That's how many bricks they had to bake. And so anyway, this is the idea. There are people gathering to build a city, and in the middle, they would build a tower. Now, here's a word y'all want you to learn. Everybody say ziggurat. Yeah, this was the name of the tower. This was the temple. So if you go back into archaeology and you look at their studies throughout that entire region of the world, most every city had a ziggurat. It was their temple of worship. As a matter of fact, they've excavated over 30 of these different things. Some cities had more than one. And, and it was the idea that we want to build a temple. And if you remember the way that they said it, they said it like this. They said that we want to build a city and a tower whose tops is in the heavens. They believed that by building the biggest tower. See, you got to remember like how ancient these people are. Imagine you had only lived in the desert or in farmland, and all of a sudden somebody plopped you down in New York City. Can you imagine how big the buildings were? You would be just blown away. So like, you gotta remember, this is the first time, and archeology span kind of shows this, that, that literally around this time period is when they can see that mankind began to form cities. Well, like, they'd never had cities before, so when you start building towers, you get kind of like, overestimating what you've actually built, and you're like, oh, this thing's huge, the this, this tops are in the heavens. Probably wasn't actually that big. But to them, it was a really, really big deal. And they were trying to build these towers to worship. Now, remember last week when I talked to you about the different gods that they served and where they all came from. And the god that they eventually landed on was the god of Marduk. And again, this is one of the gods that they would sacrifice children to, sacrifice babies to, all kinds of awful, heinous, evil, weird things that they would do. And this is the city. This is the ziggurat, the tower of worship that they're trying to build. So the Bible says that the Lord came down. Now this is interesting that he says this is because they hadn't built it yet, but this is what he says. He goes, the Lord came down. They actually believed that the temple was the place where heaven and earth met, and therefore that was where they could get the presence of God to come down. They hadn't built the tower, and the Hebrew writer again, trying to mess with their minds, saying, before you even built the tower, God was not limited to getting access to your life based on what you did. God has free reign. He can go where he wants to go, when he wants to go, however he wants to go, and he came down before your tower ever existed. So God came down to see the tower which the sons of men had built, and the Bible says that, that God looks at them and says, indeed, the people are one. They all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. He says, come, let us go down there and confuse their language. The idea is this, is that these people had strayed so far from what they originally knew. These people, and I almost want to say that it was, it was just the default of the, of the life that they lived, because you got to remember, if all you had, you had no Bible and you had no teacher and you had no one to show you who God was, what would you think God was? The assumption is that you would look up into the sun and say, well, the sun is the most powerful thing I've ever seen, so maybe there's a sun God. And you know what we need to survive, to, to, to make crops so we can eat and live and feed our children? We need rain, so I, I bet there's a rain God. So we need to pray that the rain God sends the rain and we need to make sure that the sun God sends the sun and then there's a, there's a moon, that's at nighttime, so we worship the moon. And so like people just didn't know 
People had no clue and they wandered off into these weird ideas and to try to get God to answer their prayers, they were willing to do anything. So you gotta remember, I wanna say how simplistic maybe some of the thinking was or how even barbaric some of the thinking was. And God looks at this and says something fascinating. He says, I've got to go down there and stop them. So this is a story of idolatry. This is a story of saying God is nothing like that. God's not limited to your towers. God doesn't need you to kill your children. You don't want to build a ziggurat. The city of Babylon is evil and God has tried to disrupt it. This is the historical story. And it's kind of interesting and it's really quick and what's fascinating is, is that really no other biblical author ever mentions it again. Have you ever noticed that? Like you'll hear Noah and the boat mentioned again. You'll hear Adam and Eve mentioned again. Different Genesis stories. Obviously we get to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are mentioned regularly but the Tower of Babel is really never brought up in the Bible and never mentioned again. The reason why I find this story so fascinating is not all the historical stuff that's in there, and there's a little bit more, but it'd bore you. The reason why I find it so fascinating is this, is that they actually did something that God was impressed with. Did you notice that? It was as if God looked at what they did and said, wow, look at that, look at what they did. I'm kind of impressed because what they've purposed to do in their heart will not be withheld from them unless I come down there myself. Now that's a pretty good compliment, isn't it? Like he's so awesome, only I'm more awesome. He's so good at what he's doing, only I could go down there. It's like, it's like you know, the, the, the Niners are gonna be so good, only I could stop them, you know, that kind of a thing. I have a really bad story, can I tell y'all something? I feel like God cursed me this week because y'all know I'm a Niner fan and I kind of poke fun at the Raiders and I think they're terrible. <laughs> My son's starting football this year. He's, he's playing for the Raiders. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so anyway, my, my point is, this, is that I actually looked at what, what God did was look at them and say, I'm, I'm kind of impressed. Like, like, only if I come down there will I be able to stop you. And this is mind-blowing to think that this archaic, barbaric, kind of offbeat, idolatrous, put it this way, have you ever been good at doing something bad? That's these people. Like, like, and I know people, like I, got, like, I know y'all, there's a lot of you I know, like y'all used to be really, really good at doing bad stuff. Like, I know some of y'all out there, you're like, man, I used to be a great drug dealer. Like, I was really, really, I was organized. I had, I had crew and men and systems and, you know, I had, I had supply and demand working. Like, and you sound like you're, you're a business executive, but you were a drug dealer. And you were really, really good. Don't say amen, but you were really, really good at being bad. I know your stories. I, I know some of y'all, they're like, I'm a great liar. I mean, like, there's nothing to be proud of, but like, you, you know, you, you know, you could lie your way through anything. Other you out there, like, I know some of you who, who are like, you know what, man, I just have this anger issue, and I like to get into fights and just beat people up. I'm really good at beating people. These are the counseling situations I work with, so know who you're sitting near now. So, you know, think before you just take a seat. Look around. Um, but, but the point is, it's like, yeah, like, I'm really good. Like, I, I'm really good at beating people up. All right, we got to cut that out, though. I, don't, I can't find a way that you can use that for the glory of God right now. So, um, unless you want to be an MMA fighter and tell everybody about Jesus. But I, I just don't know other than that. And so, like, you were really, really good at being bad. That's what these people were. God said, y'all are really, really, really good at doing something stupid. Only if I go down there will you be stopped. Which to me begs the question, what were they doing that made them so effective? 
And why was it that what they were doing was so good that, 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 that God was impressed with them? And here's what I've discovered, that I really believe that the Tower of Babel, when you look at it from an outsider's perspective and you ask the question, what were they doing that God was so impressed with, that it literally becomes a blueprint for how to make a successful marriage, how to make a successful business, and how to make a successful church. You ready to walk down this path with me? Number one is this, is the first thing that the Bible overemphasizes is that the Bible says they all had what? One language. They had the same language, the same speech. And this is repeated. What you'll find is that the three things I'm going to show you today, they're not just kind of subtly, they are overly emphasized. And the first thing is this, is they all had the same language. Now you would think, Todd, we all speak English or we all, most of us hopefully speak a little bit English or whatever it is. That's not what I'm talking about. Because in any type of business, any type of marriage, or any type of church, there is a nuance to language. Can I, okay, look, y'all aren't getting with me yet. Married couples, can I get an amen? The, the, we all speak the same language. We don't. Let, let, let me give you an example. So, so, let me explain how this works in my house. So if, if, if I say, hey, I'm gonna go get Caitlin dressed and ready to go, or my wife says, I'm gonna go get Caitlin dressed and ready to go, they mean very different things. Like, this is what it means to my wife. It means to my wife is I'm gonna go in there, I'm gonna get a really cute outfit that matches, and I'm gonna get matching accessories, and I'm gonna make sure she uses the potty first, and she's gonna have the nice shoes that match onto, and I'm gonna wipe her face, because why, why is it that kids can't eat a sandwich around the outside, they go straight to the middle, and then they end up with jelly? jelly face this way like eat a sandwich the right way and so you got to wipe their face and then like and then you do their hair you put little little butterfly clips in it and then they're so pretty they look like they're ready for a picture and that's what my wife does okay now i didn't know that i did this until it was pointed out to be by said master of of dress and accessories so this is what i learned I thought get Caitlyn dressed and ready meant make sure she has clothes covering basic body parts. <laughs> pajamas are optional. You know, depending on where you're going, like, I don't, you just wear your pajamas. I don't care. Just put some flip-flops on. And, 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 you know, you just leave. You, you just make sure they're buckled. You know, that's about it. And then my wife was like, she would make fun of me because this would happen like two, three times in a row. Any, anywhere we, like, I'd take her to the gym and then my wife would pick her up or whatever and like, oh, dear God. And she'd be embarrassed. And then she'd get on to me when we got home because I didn't dress Caitlin. So, so, so different, let, let me give you another example. So like, I'm gonna go take a shower. My wife could say the same, it means totally two different things. I, I, let, let me explain to you in, in, in detail because guys, I need you to understand this because it's gonna set you free. When, you're, when your wife says, I'm going to take a shower, this is in essence what that means. Number one is I'm gonna, I'm gonna take off my clothes and put them in the hamper. Um, I'm gonna get in the shower and immediately look for a loofah or some type of frilly thing. Um, I'm gonna wash my hair with cucumber and grapefruit shampoo with 83 added vitamins. <laughs> um, then I'm gonna condition my hair with cucumber and grapefruit conditioner with enhanced natural crocus oil. Wash the rest of body with ginger nut and Jaffa cake body wash. When I get out, I'm going to dry myself with very large towel, size of small country. I'm going to wrap my hair in a super absorbent second towel. Then I will check my entire body for remote signs of blemishes and then spend an hour getting dressed. See that just, let, let, just guys, embrace it. Don't bite it. Because unless the Lord came down, it's not gonna stop. So now, now this is what it means for us. Like, 
like guys, this is what he means. Like, I'm gonna take a shower. First of all, I'm gonna throw my, my clothes in a pile on the floor, maybe in a pile. It might be scattered on the floor either way. Uh, I'm then gonna be in front of the mirror for a while, uh, sucking in my stomach, flexing some muscles, checking out my manscape. That, that's part two. Then I'm gonna get in the shower. Don't really need a washcloth. Probably just wash armpits and face. That's about it. Um, then you're gonna get out, get water all over the floor. You know, then you do a couple more poses, put a towel around your waist, and then walk around the house for a little while. <laughs> ladies, ladies, just embrace it. And, and here's why language is so important. Now, this, this, this does really matter. Because when I counsel couples, when I hear them arguing in my office, which gets awkward sometimes, um, you know, what, what I find is, is that they are communicating on two completely different wavelengths. That in essence, sometimes they're, they're trying to say the same thing, but because they use different words and different phrasing, they, they're just not on the same page. And so when she says this, he interprets this. I mean, in all reality, guys, you need a book. You know what I mean? Like in a perfect world, you would get a book that would say, if a woman says this, this is what it means. But nobody gives us that manual when we get married. And so usually five, six years, 10 years, 20 years, we get figured it out a little bit, hopefully. And so anyway, getting on the same language, and here's where great marriages happen, is when wives, you learn how to speak man. When you learn what, what, because see, girls, you will do certain things trying to get your man to do something, and it backfires on you. It either makes him mad or it demasculates him, and you never get what you want. There's a right way to go about it, and usually it has to do with just stroking their ego. That's, that's the, the, the basic gist of it. Just, just make them feel good. Stroke their ego and then help them to get you doing what they need to get doing. Does that make sense? And women, y'all are the same way. Y'all have a different language. Y'all have a different set of needs. And if we would just be aware of what those words mean and what those phrases mean. Guys, if we would just like slow down. She said this. Because this is where we lose it. We don't think. Um, when she says this, think. What does that mean? That right there is 90% of the battle. If you will just do that, you will get, in, in businesses, it's the same way. Great organizations, they have the same phrasing, the same terminology. They know when the boss says this, this is exactly what he means. They understand what their mission is, what their values are, what their, their main behaviors are. They know what the, what the goals are. They understand everything to a T, and because they speak the same language, they can get on the same page really, really, really quick. Church is the same way. When you speak the same language, we all know what, what this means. We all know what that means. But see, here the problem lies is, is when you see the church on a much bigger, broad, not the local church, but the broader, lo bigger church, many of us, we, at the end of the day, you know what I've realized? Is that most Bible-based, balanced Christian churches, you know what I've realized? At the end of the day, we all want the same thing. But we argue, and we bicker, and we fight, and we nag, and we talk about one another, and we get into the weirdest debates, and the we, we will argue about the most minutia of Scripture, and get all huffy and upset, because, and just because they phrased it a little bit differently, or thought of it a little bit differently, and we get all huffy and get mad, and then we have divided, now we've got this camp, and this group, and this denomination, and we, we're not like them, because we want to be more like this, and we, and we forget that at the end of the day, we... We actually all started out with the same exact agenda. How did we get so far? I'll tell you what it is. Because we know that through the rest of Scripture, that the devil reads the Bible. I don't know if you know that or not. Like in, in, in Matthew chapter 4, when Satan tempts Jesus, he quotes Scripture. How do you quote Scripture? You've read it before. You thought about it. I dare you to know that the devil has read Genesis chapter 11, and he took a note from God, and he said, hmm, you know what, if I want to disrupt a marriage, if I want to disrupt a church, you know what I have to do? I have to get it to where they're not speaking the same language because as soon as they begin to speak different languages, confusion sets in and everything begins to 
unravel. We need to speak the same language. So you ask yourself the question, what is the language? I'm telling you this, the, the language of the kingdom is faith. The language of the kingdom is grace. The language of the kingdom is hope. The language of the kingdom is encouragement. And how sad is it sometimes that I look around people that are in church and I think, how in the world did we become the people that are known as being mean, arrogant, and judgmental? That's not the language of the kingdom. And so because of that, the world thinks we're mean and insiders, we're one of the only organizations on the planet Earth that eats their own. Like when one falls, we just kick them to make sure they really know that they're sinners. Like, you need to know. You need to be punished. You need to be able to put on probation. You can't. You're not allowed. You're, and we get so critical of everything. We get so kind of just nasty about everything. Where did we lose sight that the language of the kingdom was that of faith, that of grace, that of hope, that of love, and that of encouragement? And I'm telling you, this is what you begin to see when you look at how the enemy has infiltrated marriages and how he's even infiltrated the church by getting us to speak the wrong language. The language of the world is this. It's doubt, fear, and discouragement. It's doubt, fear, and discouragement. As long as I can get you speaking that same language, I promise you I'm going to thwart all of your plans and everything will begin to unravel. The best thing that you and I can begin to do as husband and wife and as partners in the kingdom of God is begin to try to accept and believe in each other to speak the same language of faith and love and hope and grace. Can I get an amen out there? Amen. amen. Number two is this. Not only do we want same language, but the Bible also says that we want something unique in here. And, and it's something they say in verses 3 and 4 and, and, and so forth. It says this, come let us make bricks. Let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build a city. You know what they had? They had the power of us. Do you notice that when every time they speak, not one individual person is named, not one king is named, not one powerful authority is named, but they all spoke what? Collectively. They literally thought of themselves as a binded community. That They didn't think of themselves as individuals, but they thought of themselves as a collective. And I'm telling you, this is where, again, the enemy just kind of takes note and says, oh, look how powerful they were. Look how successful they were. I was winning. I was working until God came down. And you see this mentality that they just saw everything together as a collective. And it's community. Do you know that the entirety of Scripture speaks in that same language? I could take you through scripture after scripture after scripture and you would find this one common theme is that God wants you unified, that God wants you in a collective us type environment. Let me show you this. So the Bible says, talking about the, the, the power of us, listen to this, Ephesians chapter three, verse 20. The Bible says, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works where? It, it's in us. Like the reason why some of you lack the power of God in your life is because you do things by yourself and you do things alone and you don't, you don't pray with your wife, you pray alone. You don't pray with a group of believers, you pray alone. You don't do things with other believers, you do things alone. And I'm telling you that there's a lack of power. Listen to this, not only that, there's a Bible verse that says where two or three or more gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. When one or two agree on a thing that I will do it and complete it and accomplish it. What, what does that mean? For your prayers to even be potent, what do you need? Somebody else. You need to be in a collective. You need to be in a community. You need to be hitching your wagon to other believers so that you can accomplish what it is that God wants you to accomplish. Even this, check this out. The Lord's Prayer, the one we quote, usually by ourselves. Listen to this. The Bible says that our father, notice it didn't say my dad. It's like my dad. No, it's our father. 
Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But as soon as we start asking for stuff, listen to this. It says, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive. Did it forgive me? We're all jacked up. That's what that means. We are all debtors in need of forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver what? Us from the evil. What you find over and over and over again is this is that your prayers, the power of God, getting things accomplished in the earth, they were never meant to be accomplished by individuals. As the old Texas saying goes, that if you find a turtle on top of a fence post, you need to know he did not get there by himself. That is life. That is accomplishing anything important for the kingdom of God. It's collective. So here's my question, who's your us? Who's the us that's around you? Who are the people that you hitch your wagon to, that you hitch your prayers to, that you hitch your, hitch your faith to? Who are the people that you worship together with? Not just on a Sunday morning, but who is your us? Because what the blueprint was this, is when you get two people in a marriage or people in a church that have the same language and they begin to see themselves, not as individuals, but they begin to see themselves as a collective, something powerful begins to happen. Lastly is this, not only do you want the same language and not only do you want a us mentality, but they also had unity of purpose. It's not enough to want to speak the same language. It's not enough even to look at yourselves as a collective, but you've got to remember that you are actually put here for a reason. You have a mission and a purpose and a destiny. You have meaning here on earth. What is that? See, as parents sometimes, or as, as, as a couple, or as, as, as a marriage couple, you don't know what your purpose is. Many times, you, you're just kind of like wading through life, trying to figure out what's next, trying to figure out where you're going with your marriage, trying to figure out where you're going with your family or with your parenting. My question is, what's your purpose? Like, what's your goal? What are you aiming at? What are you moving towards? What has God put in your hearts to do and to accomplish? Because when we don't have a purpose to set our eyes onto, we wander. So you can have the same language, and that's great. That means you're going to get along together. You can see yourselves as a collective. That means you're not going to be divisive and mean with each other. But at the end of the day, what would you have accomplished? Not a lot. You also need the unity of purpose that says, I know what God's trying to do in this church. I know what God's trying to do in this family and in this marriage. And we begin to move together now on that purpose. Listen to these words that I'm closing soon. John chapter 17. The Bible says, Jesus is praying, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be what? One, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did you see that? Just as Father, I'm in you and you're in me, and just as we're one, I want them to be one, and I want them to be one in us so that the world may know. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Do you see the repetition here? I in them and you in me, may they be brought into complete unity so that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This isn't the only place God kind of lays it out there, but he lays down this huge prayer. This is the last prayer he prays with his disciples before he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and before he crucified and dies again, or dies and is risen again. This is it. This is his last prayer with the fellows, with the disciples, with the crew. He goes, God, I want them to be one with each other. I want them to be one with you. 
But there's a reason behind it. It's so that the world may know. You gotta ask yourself as a church, what, what, what do we exist for? Do we really think that it's okay for us just to gather, to sit around and hug one another and sing kumbaya, pat each other on the back and then go about our day? But could it be that God actually saved you so that you could be a part of the saving process for someone else? Could it be that God blessed you so that you could bless someone else? Could it be that God healed you so that you could bring healing to someone else? Could it be that God made you the salt of the earth? The thing that flavors the world. Could it be that God made you the light of the world? A city set on a hill that might not be hidden. So that the world may know. You've been given one simple mission here as a church. And we boiled it down. Jesus, Jesus said it very, very plainly like this. I've given you a mission. It's this. It's to make disciples of all men. Of all nations. That's the idea. We, we, we boiled it down to one simple phrase. We're trying to connect people to Christ. What are we about? What's our mission? We're trying to connect people to Jesus. What are we about? What are we trying to, we're trying to let the world know that God loves them. We're wanting to show the world what God is like so that they may know him as we know him. That's it. That's what we're all about. And you know what's funny is this? And I talk to pastors from all kinds of different churches and all kinds of denominations. And you know what I figured out? At the end of the day, they basically believe exactly the same thing that I believe. We're trying to help other people connect to Jesus. Every once in a while I find something that's really kooky out on the fringe. I'm not saying every church. I'm saying most Bible-believing balancers, they all, at the end of the day, when we sit down, we all come to that same conclusion. But why did, how did we get so divided? How did we get so separated? You know what happened somewhere along the road? We didn't start speaking the same language. We didn't actually major on the major, which was showing the world what God was like. We begin to major on the minors, and we begin to look at our small differences. Do you notice that he didn't pray that we would be one in doctrine? Now, doctrine's important. Don't get me wrong. I don't want us to be goofy. I don't want us to be wrong and off into some weird heresy. I don't want that. But like, Jesus' main priority was not orthodox. It was not that you have every doctrine just so. It just, as a matter of fact, you know what he, he, he worked on more than anything? is that you would be in unity of purpose. That was his main deal. But yet we've gotten hung up on all the little things and all the little doctrines and all the little things that we don't quite agree on and don't see eye to eye on. And I would say, wow, we've lost it. What we ought to do is take a book or take a page from the book of Genesis chapter 11 and say, you know what, as a church, we need to begin to speak the same language. We need to see ourselves as a collective and we need to begin working towards that common goal and common mission. You know what, in your marriage, you know what I would love to see? I just live to see for husbands and wives to attempt and try and to work at speaking the same language because I guarantee you, you'll like each other more if you do so. You'll begin to discover things about each other that you didn't know. You'll begin to not fight and argue why because you'll see each other as a collective speaking the same language, trying to figure that out. And then what the, here's the question I have for you as a marriage couple, as a family. What are you moving towards? What is your purpose? Let these truths and insights get down deep into your heart, get down deep into your mind and begin to ask yourself the questions. Am I working towards something that's so great and so amazing that only God could stop it? Let's pray this morning. I want you to have a powerful marriage this morning. Can I say that? I want you to have a powerful family this morning. I want you to be a part of a powerful church. And today I think we saw a glimpse out of a simple, simple, simple story. It's only eight verses long, and I think we saw something incredible, that these pagan people we're really, really good at doing bad things. You know what my goal for you is today? Is I want you to be really, really good at doing great things. I want you to be great as sons and daughters of God. I want you to be great as moms and as dads. I want you to be great as husbands 
and wise. I want you to be great at being servants in the kingdom of God. I want you to be great at it. And so the next time your wife or your husband or your wife, I want you to work towards speaking the same language. I want you to unify and not divide. They're not the enemy. Those other churches, they're not the enemy. Your spouse is not the enemy. The Bible says we have one enemy, that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we rather wrestle against powers and principalities and spiritual darkness in wicked places. They're not the enemy. I want you to be really, really good at doing something great. And so Father, I pray that you would speak to us today. God, whether it's in our family, our marriage, or in our church, God, where is it that we can begin to speak the language of faith? Where is it that we can stop being harsh and critical with our words? Stop being judgmental with people. God, but rather speak the language of grace. Father, where is it that we can unify and realize we're all working towards the same goal? We might do it a little bit differently. We might even say a little bit differently. God, we're all working towards the main, the main thing. And God, help us to keep the main thing the main thing. Father, we pray that we would take these words, God, and apply them to our lives as we walk out of this building, God, so that we can be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. God, a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. God, we pray and we ask these things in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Can we